before we get started, I just want to say, as always, everyone interviewed for this podcast speaks solely for themselves. Welcome to American Rabbi Project, the podcast about American Judaism from the perspective of rabbis across the country. I'm Justin Regan. This is the third and final episode of a special mini-series where I interview Holocaust educators about their thoughts on Holocaust education and remembrance today. This genocide is also known as the Shoah, which is the Hebrew word for destruction. In part one, we heard from a Holocaust survivor who became an artist and speaker. In part two, we listened to a rabbi who is the child of survivors. Today, we're going to hear from three people in two separate segments. First, a college professor who teaches classes on the Holocaust, and then from two screenwriters who wrote a children's book starring Anne Frank's cat. History is personal. I first got the idea to do a special series on Holocaust education when I was on my road trip. In Virginia, I had the unique opportunity to catch up with a former college professor of mine from my time at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff, Arizona. He taught one of the most powerful classes I have ever taken, a history course on the Holocaust. Hello, my name is Martin Kalb. I'm an assistant professor of history here at Bridgewater College, and I came from NAU, so that's how I know Justin. Dr. Kalb doesn't just specialize in modern European history. He's lived it. He likes to introduce himself to a new class with a photo of him as a smiling nine-year-old in front of the Berlin Wall, hammer and chisel in hand. Those are one of my, 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 my memories growing up in a divided Germany and then also seeing or being part of when it reunited or united. And that shaped me on some level as did the previous family history. And the memory in Germany is really weird on some level. On one hand, there's a clear effort to address the past, the Holocaust, and these sorts of things. On the other hand, there's also sometimes the the story just begins in 45, the rags to riches story, and we rebuild and things like that. So distangling that, I never had the, I guess, privilege maybe on some level to talk to my grandparents about their experiences in World War II, so it was always channeled through my dad, which has some limitations. But yeah, you, you wrestle with that identity, you see it more as a responsibility of keeping certain things in the in the limelight, especially more recently. And yeah, for some reason I ended up as an as a historian. I was deeply interested in that stuff and I think history is personal, yeah, in that sense. Kalb has taught classes on the Holocaust, Holocaust memory, and genocide, and he makes sure to bring up the subject in any other class he teaches. Kalb says most students already know what happened, but getting to the why is crucial, and that requires moving off of preconceived notions. So one point I try to make clear is the role of Eastern Europe in the war in general. So that the wars in many cases were were too fought in Eastern Europe. That's where it's a racial war. That's where the Holocaust happens. The bloodlands, as Timothy Snyder refers to that region. And just to get him a little bit away that it's the U.S., it's all about the U.S., which not surprisingly many think because we they grew up in the U.S., right? And of course that front matters as well. And then to think a little bit more critically about the role of individuals and not just Hitler and the top Nazis, that it's to implement uh, genocide on that scale, 
millions of people have to be involved on some level. And what does that mean? How do you get to that point where it's socially acceptable to just call someone certain terms and then eventually even be okay with that they just disappear? It's a common topic Cobb brings up again and again in his classes. If you see every perpetrator as a monster and not as a human, then you can't fully grasp how a genocide can manifest. One book he likes to prescribe to students is Ordinary Men by Christopher Browning. It's about a group of German soldiers who are tasked with carrying out mass executions of Jews. As the title implies, Browning paints these mass murderers as typical people. They're not bloodthirsty zealots, but soldiers carrying out an order at the front lines of the Holocaust. Some have reservations, some get shaken up by it, some have friendly conversations with their victims as they march them to their graves, but no one tries to stop it. For Kalb, it's a very chilling and necessary aspect of Holocaust education. I think it was Raoul Hilberg, or one of the more well-known Holocaust scholars, pointed that out, that the more the scholars that spend a lot of time thinking about it realize more and more that they're more and more unsure what they would have done. And if a student gets gets into that complicated thought process, I don't know what I would have done. Would I have stepped forward if I had the chance? 90% of the time, you probably wouldn't because 90% of the people don't. And that's a very difficult revelation to oneself, and then one might be more interested in preventing being put in that situation in the first place by working on sustaining institutions that prevent certain things by defending them and these sorts of things that we're not put in that position where 90% of us will make a horrible choice because they feel there's no other. So that I think is a moment where students could become more reflective. It's a haunting and difficult way to learn about the Shoah. But Kalb says his teaching philosophy is to make people feel uncomfortable. Because that's when learning happens, when they are unsure and they question something. They're moving away out of their comfort zone. If they leave the classroom and know, feel comfortable, feel, oh, I've, I've checked that box and I did something horribly wrong as an educator. And I think the same applies for Holocaust education. The topics are heavy, so there's a certain amount of care. There's a certain amount of wo- avoiding trivializing the events. There's a certain amount of providing enough space for reflection because everyone is different. There's a certain amount of asking questions versus always having the answer because I don't have all the answers. No one does in that field. And to kind of move beyond, yeah, the simplifications. It's not just about evil Nazis or these sorts of elements. These are complex human beings like you and me, which makes it very, very uncomfortable to think about. So I think that reaches a deeper level than just say they're evil and that's why they did it. No, it's a little more messy than that. Kalb also mentors other educators on how to approach the subject. He says one major point that should be addressed if there is limited time for teaching the Holocaust is the connection between genocide and war. Genocides tend to happen under the cover of war when there's either too much going on that we can't follow what's happening or we just think about the other and us and don't complicate the storylines and everything is up for for grabs. So just based on, I think it was Bergen's book, who, who, who has that war and genocide connection, I think that's a very 
straightforward way to think about that it always is under the cover or many times under that cover of war. And if students walk away with that, then that already complicates some of the elements that they might come into it, this preconceived notions that it's, no, they have to be very, very racist or anti-Semitic people. And then there will be maybe something. No, it, it just boils up during, and then once war happens, the guardrails are gone. The, there were steps, and I don't know if you remember, there's different scholars that use like different steps towards genocide or stages towards genocide. And we can always ask ourselves which stages are currently discrimination and then eventually separation, all these sorts of things. But this, this, so there, there's steps towards it and it's easier to step in then than to step in at the end when, the, when shots are fired and people are murdered. Kalb says the need to teach about the Holocaust and other genocides is only growing, especially with a documented rise in anti-Semitism and neo-Nazism, not just around the world and in his home country, but in his backyard. Bridgewater College is only 60 miles away from Charlottesville, Virginia, where a deadly white supremacist rally occurred in 2017. At one point, neo-Nazis marched through the streets chanting blood and soil, a phrase steeped in Nazi ideology. They also chanted, Jews will not replace us. On one hand, it's surprising. On the other hand, it's not. Being the educator, you are aware of certain trends. You are aware of certain dynamics. You are aware of the prominence that these voices still have. You are aware as a historian that they pop up repeatedly and have to be addressed directly. You cannot argue with someone who is on these sorts of, you have to almost fight it on some level more directly. But then also surprised of how emboldened they are and how, and I said that in my class, I think last week, how these days you have to basically say, let's all agree, Nazis are bad. Being from Germany, you see the rise of other right-wing groups. You see the use and misuse of language. It's always these terms that pop up again. Enemy of the state, enemy of the people, and all this other language. These sometimes more direct, sometimes more indirect. But everyone knows what it, what it means. And you're just like, yeah, it's a, it's a wake-up call. This also comes at a time when the number of Holocaust survivors is dwindling. Kalb says survivors are an important factor in Holocaust education, but he also knows a new age of Shoah education is coming, where they'll be gone. Some of us already almost have to do that based on that they might not live in the area, they might not be able to or sometimes not willing to speak in general. Yeah, you have to make it personal. You have to address it through primary sources in a different way, through videos, through experiences that can be related through another generation. So there's children of survivors speaking. I also teach a class, so I teach the class on genocide more broadly, where we talk about other genocides, so including the dynamic in Srebrenica, so in Yugoslavia in the 1990s, and there you have maybe a different avenue to get voices in that experience that. So on some level, unfortunately, the voices of those that have experienced these sorts of dynamics are still around because they happen all the time. Kalb also thinks an important aspect of Holocaust education is talking about other genocides and tying in the common patterns. There's this 
powerful statement of never again that the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum uses, but to make sure that apparently we have been horribly at that because it happens and continues to happen, so that it's not over. History is never over. History is always personal. History radiates when it comes to war and genocide in particular, if it's trauma through generations or other things. So to just, it's a way to, yeah, to complicate it at the end of the day. I also strongly think that it will get worse. There's, within the field of genocide studies, the dynamic of climate change will, will bring certain conflicts out more to the forefront. And as we know, once conflicts happen, we tend to simplify between us and them, and then these things unfold even more. So if we believe that human lives and humanity matters and that people are should be protected, then we need to pay attention to this stuff. It can all seem pretty grim. But just like Hal Cobb focuses on how a genocide can be carried out on a personal level, he also shows the power an individual has to make a change. As a former colleague of mine used to say, who was also a Holocaust educator, that sometimes when, when he's asked the basic, so what should I do, what should I do? Just be nice to people. Like Sometimes it's the basic stuff that in our everyday life can go so much further than, oh, I'm going to have to fly around the world and do all that. No, it's basic humanity, especially towards those that you might not agree with. And it's difficult. I mean, we struggle, I struggle with it. It's, it's just difficult. But Kolb tries to make it a little easier for his students. He strives to help his students visualize and actualize a better world. Kolb mandates each student in his Holocaust class take part in community service work. Students generally had a hard time seeing their own role in how do I matter, how does my voice matter, I can't do anything, I'm just a 18-year-old, 19-year-old NAU student. And I was always struck by that, that, well, if we don't have power, who does? We're in the richest country, most powerful country in the world, we have a voice. So I then opened it up, do something in the local community that matters to you, that you can then make sense of it, because otherwise it becomes too overwhelming. Hopefully, few of us, if any, will ever be near some of these events, but injustices from bullying all the way to racial discrimination is all around us, and there's ways to combat that in different ways. Community service is one way, but students wrote letters, did all kinds of things to try to find their passion of how to channel that sort of anger and that sort of discuss that something tangible comes out of it all and that's not just an academic exercise. Oh, okay, I checked the box, I took the class, I shed some tears and now I can move on. I think that's not enough. That was Dr. Martin Kalb, assistant professor of history at Bridgewater College in Virginia. He specializes in, among other things, teaching the Holocaust and other genocides to college students. And I was one of those students. Kalb's style of education with the use of discomfort and critical thinking partially led me to be the person I am today, someone who tries to make an actively positive impact on the world. As rabbis have mentioned before on this podcast, college is a time when people are searching for meaning and identity. That makes it one of the best times to teach the subject of genocide and what individuals can do to stop it. But when should you start teaching someone about the Shoah? The next two people we're going to hear from think it should start at a young age. They've written a children's book on the Holocaust. It follows the story of Anne Frank through the eyes of her pet cat, Mushi. Here's an excerpt read by one of the authors, Steve Rubin. 
I am the only hider who can venture out. I slip through the attic window toward the only glimpse of sky the humans don't veil with black paper, onto the rain gutter, across a chestnut tree, and smiles, wistful, and she writes, Dear Kitty, I long to ride a bike, dance, whistle, look at the world, feel young, and know that I am free, and yet I can't let it show. When will we be allowed to breathe fresh air again? One of the key moments in the whole story is when Mushi actually goes outside and Anne is looking at him, realizing that he can do things that she can't. Mushi, being a cat, can taste freedom. Anne is denied that, and that was very powerful for me. And I'm Steve Rubin, and I'm a filmmaker and a writer and co-author with David of The Cat Who Lived with Anne Frank. Hello, my name is David Miller, and uh, I'm a filmmaker and a writer. The story of Anne Frank is probably one of the most famous stories of the Holocaust. Anne Frank was a German-born Dutch-Jewish teenager who kept a diary of her hopes, dreams, fears, and stories while hiding from the Nazis with her family and several others in Amsterdam. After two years of hiding in a secret annex, they were captured. Anne Frank would die of typhus at the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp, but her diary would become one of the world's most famous books. And in it, she mentions on several occasions a cat named Mushi. Miller says it makes a great launching point for talking about the Shoah with children. We wanted to be able to make a gentle, if, and that's a, a tough word, introduction to the Holocaust for young people. And we felt, you know, Anne Frank has always traditionally been a way to reach young people, tweens, even preteens, pre uh, with you know, what the Holocaust was about. And uh, we feel going through the eyes of a cat uh, allows us to go even a little bit younger. And and when you see the book, we do focus on, you know, we get in late and we get out early. You know, we, we enter the book when Peter is bringing Mushi into the annex. We leave the story before Anne Frank is captured. Miller and Rubin are both screenwriters living near Los Angeles, California. And in a way, their careers have been leading to this collaboration. Miller has worked a lot in the field of education and entertainment. He's founded a nonprofit called Regenerate Films, where teenagers make PSAs and films about issues that affect them and the world at large. Rubin has worked on several documentaries and historical fiction movies based around World War II. Rubin got the idea for the book one day while shaving. I love listening to movies uh, all the time. Uh, on tape, audio tape. I happen to do a lot of that while I'm shaving. And one day I had the 1959 George Stevens movie, the cat, actually the Diary of Anne Frank on the audio cassette player. And uh, they're chasing Mushi around the attic, uh, Anne and Peter and uh, Anne's sister Margot. And I said to myself, I wonder what the cat thought of these people who never go outside, who never, who have to tiptoe during the day. I mean, what was his point of view? And those are the questions they try to answer. Mushi is the narrator and describes being hidden away in Peter's coat in the June heat as he's taken to the annex. Peter is another teenager hiding with the Franks. Mushi quietly lies down with the annex residents during the day when they must be silent. He provides comfort to the residents, hunts the vermin that eat their food, and also gives everyone fleas. The book conveys that even for a cat, the Holocaust is personal. 
We really wanted to be historically accurate, so we wanted to find out, first of all, what, what was the story about animals with Jews. And we found out early in our research that Jews were not allowed to have pets. So they literally had to at first register their pets, and then we believed they had to give them up. And there was a whole black market going on where the Germans were sending exotic pets back to Germany, starting with animals from the zoo, etc. All sorts of animals were being uh, taken away from people. And the book is historically accurate. Miller says the only liberties they took was when Mushi would leave the annex to wander the Nazi-occupied city. But even then, the things the cat witnessed really happened. A Jewish theater in Amsterdam being used as a deportation center for Jews. Employees of the city zoo hiding Jews from the Nazis in attics above the animal cages. All the while, Anne Frank was writing in her diary. It was also interesting that Anne would start, and we were inspired by this, she started each of her diary entries with Dear Kitty. Everybody has different theories on who Kitty was. It was perhaps an imaginary friend from a fantasy novel series that Anne really loved. It could have been one of her childhood friends, and then it could have been Mushi. Nobody really knows for sure. So that really gave us an opportunity uh, throughout the book to have several of Anne's most powerful quotes uh, peppered through the book. Miller and Rubin say using an animal as the main character and narrator makes the story more palatable for a younger audience and also gives them a connection to the events. The cat narrates in a style that a child might. He refers to the Nazis as black spider soldiers. The reference to the Nazis calling them the Black Spider Soldiers, actually comes from the 1965 musical, The Sound of Music, where one of the little characters, one of the Von Trapp children, looks at the swastika and refers to it as the the, the soldiers with the black spider. That kind of resonated with us because rather than talk about Nazis and swastikas and Hitler, you say black spider, that already gives you an image of kind of menace. And I think that that became a metaphor for the Nazis. And then the Referring to Anne as a yellow star girl was simply the fact that children in those days had to wear the yellow star of David on their, on their uh, clothing. The Cat Who Lived with Anne Frank has received positive reviews. It's been profiled by the Jewish Book Council, and public reading events have been held at schools and museums, including the Museum of Tolerance in L.A. The two screenwriters are also working to make it an animated movie. The film would move away from the historical accuracy of the book and tell a fictionalized version of Mushi's story where he teams up with other animals in the Dutch resistance. For Reuben and Miller, it's all about reaching young people. We're living in a time when the Holocaust survivors are dying off. Uh, The stories, in many cases, unfortunately, are dying with them. And young people today need to learn these stories more than ever. I mean, you hear a story recently that some kids, as a joke, gave the Hitler salute, you know, thinking they were kind of cool. That's terrifying to us in a sense that young people could be so unaware of history. And I think we have a responsibility to tell stories that are historical about really ha- what really happened. So it was important for us to take on the mantle. And what's a, what a, better, what's a better way to reach out to young people than to use animals as metaphors. Yeah, we live in an age of emboldened hate. Um, Holocaust denial is at an all-time high. Hate crimes are on the rise, certainly in the United States and all over the world. 
we also live in a time where information is really easy to access at the youngest ages. And we have preschoolers who are going through active shooter drills at their schools. So this is a time where kids are hearing about things at younger and younger ages and how you process that um, and how you can fight hate amidst that means that we have to reach younger and younger audiences with messages about racism and hate and anti-bullying. Ruben also says it's important to put more Jewish stories in pop culture. If you think about entertainment per se, mainstream entertainment, I mean, there's obviously Fiddler on the Roof as a musical and Schindler's List as a movie, but there isn't a huge volume of uh, stuff that's been generated in English. And we feel that the story of Mushi and Anne Frank's cat is resonates with people because it, it, it's a Jewish story, but it's also an international story of a quest for freedom. And I think we really feel it's important for people to hear that story. The Jewish Book Council says the cat who lived with Anne Frank is for ages six to eight. Reuben and Miller say maybe closer to eight to ten. But regardless, it's a book for children about the Holocaust. I asked if people have expressed concerns about it being too young to discuss such a topic. Well, it's a very good question because that actually has been brought up to us many times. You know, parents are are very uh, concerned about traumatizing young children. And that's why the cat is a perfect narrator for this story. I think that we're both parents. We're both aware of what you can tell a young person. But interestingly, we... In, in history, for instance, we celebrate Passover every year, which talks about the killing of the firstborn of Israel. So murder and mayhem is a part of Jewish history that we're taught to deal with. The Pharaoh was killing people. So it softened it a little bit for us. But we made sure that Mushi was in every line, practically. It's Mushi's story. The best thing that can happen for young people is for them to question, say, Mom, who who were the Nazis? If if more people would ask that question and more people gave them the appropriate answer, I think we would be starting to conquer that great racism divide. And I think it's important. So our book is answers some questions, but it also um, is motivating people to ask questions. And they say it's not just for young kids, but a useful teaching tool all the way through high school. For Miller, while he's concerned by data that finds younger generations to be less aware of the history of the Shoah, he also sees a generation that is empowered and capable of doing great things. He hopes their book can play a part in that culture. Look at these kids uh, coming out of the school shooting situations who end up uh, you know, becoming very political, or young Greta fighting uh, climate change. And I find it really interesting, the, the names of certain movements. Um, the group out of Florida after the school shooting, what did they call their, their movement? Never again. You know, that's straight from the Holocaust. We do have some racism in our politics today. Uh, we had uh, Lindbergh, who was a huge anti-Semite and did horrible things within our government. Uh, what was the name of his movement? America First. So we live in a time where we need to reach our youth, and our youth are very vocal. Uh, they're vocal about fighting hate and bullying. You know, they're vocal about fighting mass shootings. Uh, and they're vocal about climate change because, you know, they 
are in any in many ways because of the information overload because they're so overconnected they know a lot more than when i was a kid uh and they also struggle with is that information that they find true because now we're in an age where it's about clicks instead of facts it's more important to educate our young people than ever because they truly care they feel they're inheriting an earth that was in some ways you know ruined uh, uh by hate and greed I think the best way to change the world now is, as Steve said there, the future is to change the future uh, through educating our young people. Miller says a major draw for them to write about Anne Frank was the power of her words and the influence she has had on everyone from lay people to world leaders. It's a theme that comes out in one of Miller's favorite excerpts from his book. Will anybody ever hear my girl's words, read them? Wind wisps the chestnut tree towering outside our tiny, precious window. Anne whispers, if we think of all the beauty still around us, we won't give in to sadness. And to the chestnut's lilt and the beats and purrs of my boy's and girl's breath, I nap. We nap, dreaming dreams more powerful than bombs, dreams of Anne's kind and gentle spirit lighting up the world forever. That was David Miller and Steve Rubin, who wrote The Cat Who Lived with Anne Frank. Previously, we heard from Dr. Martin Kolb, an assistant professor of history at Bridgewater College who teaches classes on the Holocaust. While the memory might be fading for some, the long reach of the Shoah can still be felt by many others today, not only from the historical trauma, but overwhelming demoralization. It's a genocide that was carried out with horrifying results not that long ago. And that dark spirit of hatred and genocide still plagues the world to this very second. But as Kolb says, that's where the need for good deeds is most critical. The ultimate battle between good and evil is not a blatant epic clash. Instead, it occurs every second on a micro level. Every action we do has consequences. The challenge is seeing the positive effects in a vastly negative presenting world. And who knows? Maybe it's not until we pass on that the full value of our impact is laid bare before us. But if we're paralyzed by the enormity of the challenge and the perceived limitations of our actions, then there'll never be improvement. And that's something epitomized by the work of Anne Frank. I can't imagine what she was going through, but I can assume at times she felt very small in a very large global storm. But that didn't stop her from letting her heart run across the pages. And in the end, she inspired the world. A micro act with a macro impact. That's what we're all capable of. Serving our communities, mentoring a kid, finding compassion even when we want to feel anything but. These are small acts. But in so many ways, they can be more powerful than bombs. This concludes our special mini-series on Holocaust education. All in all, it was a bit of a departure from the usual content, and I'm curious what you thought. You can email me at justin at rabbiproject.com. Once again, justin at rabbiproject.com. American Rabbi Project, History is Personal, was written and produced by me, Justin Regan. Derek Pova handles the web stuff. Additional thanks to Jeremy Crones, Sarit Rathbone, Beth Vanderstoop, Dylan Abrams, and my parents for the assistance. Also, thanks to Dr. Martin Kolb for introducing me to Rabbi Peter Grumbacher, the rabbi we heard from in the previous episode. Once again, my email is justin at rabbiproject.com. The Twitter handle is at Rabbi Project, and you can also find me at facebook.com slash rabbiproject. And until next time, shalom and safe driving.